Hey everyone, this is Under the Surface, and you're tuned into Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. We're also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And I'm Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me today. As you know, today is the last day of 2017. It's December 31st, and tonight is New Year's Eve. And because I've had something on my mind, something really preoccupying me since October, I decided that this topic would work well for a solo show. And I thought, why not do it on New Year's Eve day? It seemed appropriate. So today I do not have a guest. I have a totally different kind of show planned for you. You could call it an interview with myself in a way. Of course, I already have a pretty clear idea of what I'm going to talk about. You could call today's show a kind of reckoning. I'm going to talk about sexism, and specifically about my own personal reflections on the sexism I experienced or internalized from childhood to adulthood. And I should warn you here or any listeners of mine mine out there that I am going to be referring to some bad language, and I'll be talking about some topics that people might find disturbing. So if you do have young children listening, for instance, you might want to hustle them on out of the room or turn to another station. That's fine. Now, um, I realize that we've been inundated with this discussion on sexism on TV and the radio, but I promise that this show will have its own unique take um, on, you know, sexual harassment and so forth. And I'm also sure it's obvious to you why I'm choosing to focus on this right now in the wake of all these high-profile men toppling from grace one after another um, since news of the Weinstein story broke in the New York Times and, of course, the Me Too movement began. It's been a remarkable cascade of famous men in just about every single domain, from Hollywood to politics to TV, and even um, on public radio, New York public radio and New England public radio, who have been fired because of allegations of sexual harassment or assault. And it seems like there's just no end in sight. One after another, they're falling from their perches. And although the Weinstein episode set it off, I would argue um, that Trump, that Trump, also known to me at least as the assaulter in chief, is really the one who spurred this dramatic pattern of women speaking out against the men who have harassed or sexually assaulted them. And I'd say that this provoked a change in the media or those who consume the media to, li- to finally listen and care about what these women have to say. And yet, you know, surprise, surprise, our president remains strangely immune to any culpability for his own actions, even though he was caught on tape boasting about his routine sexual assault of women. I grabbed them by the blank, he said. You know the word he used because it inspired an entire movement that began with a women's march on Washington and continues today. You've seen all the women wearing the pink pussy hats throughout the country. But despite all this, the president is like Teflon, even though just a couple of weeks ago, three of his numerous female accusers, Jessica Leeds, Samantha Holvey, and Rebecca Crooks, came forward again to repeat their accounts to the public. And if you didn't catch that press conference on CBS News, I'm going to be playing an excerpt of it right now. And just to preface this, a journalist asked Jessica Leeds to describe her experience with Donald Trump in detail. She explained she was a traveling sales rep on an airplane, one of the few women who who traveled for business at the time. So here's that excerpt. 
the steward this came down the aisle and asked me, uh, would I like to come up to first class? And this had happened before. I'd been invited up to first class several times. I sat next to some really interesting people like George Steinbrenner and, and Ralph Nader and uh, various CEOs of company. It was, it was not unusual. So, and, and the food was so much better in first class. So I went up and um, sat down, and this gentleman was sitting on the window. It was right against the bulkhead. And uh, he introduced himself as Donald Trump. Well, I didn't work out of New York City, so I didn't have any awareness of the Trump name or the Trump business or Donald Trump. So we had dinner. We, they served the dinner and cleared the dinner. And about that time, he jumped all over me. And he grabbed me, and he was trying to kiss me and everything. And... As I recall, he didn't say anything, and I certainly didn't say anything. I didn't yell or, or ask for help. I remember at one point looking over at the guy sitting in the, across the aisle and thinking, well, why doesn't he come to my aid? I wondered where in hell the stewardess was. But it's when he put his, started to put his hand up my skirt, and, and that was the last time I wore a skirt traveling. Then I managed, because I'm not a small person, I, I managed to wrestle myself out of the seat and stood up, grabbed my purse, and went to the back of the airplane and sat back there until the plane landed. Let the plane, the plane, all the people get off before I left because I didn't want to run into him again. Fast forward three years. I'm now living in New York City, and I go to work for the Humane Society on 59th Street, and they're going to have this big, fancy fundraising gala at Saks Fifth Avenue. And they asked me to man the table that distributed the table distributions. So I go, and it's absolutely a New York scene. I got to meet all the designers. I got to meet various and sundry people because the, the Humane Society, as a charity, was... Very, it was very interested in inviting all the celebrities in town. And that's when I became aware that Donald Trump was the Donald Trump of the Trump family of New York City. And I recognized his picture. I remembered him. People remember when they're assaulted. They remember when, where, why, and what they had on. And they remember how they got out of it. They remember everything even if it happened when they were eight years old. So I'm handing out the chits for the table, and up comes Donald Trump, and at that time his wife, Ivana. Ivana, right. And Ivana was very pregnant. And I hand him the ticket, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, that's the guy. And he looks at me, and he says... I remember you. You're the woman from the airplane. Only he used another term before woman. And it, it, it cleared the room. It absolutely cleared the room. And I thought, oh boy. But he went on, and I went home, and that was the end of the story. Well, that was, t that was 1983. 
when in 2016, when I realized that he was really serious about running for president, I started telling my story to everybody. I said, let me tell you what kind of a person this Donald Trump is. I told everybody that I could get to sit down, and I told my family, and I told my friends, I told my neighbors, I told everybody that some people didn't believe me, which I understand completely because it was so long ago, but I wanted to get it out. And then the debates happened, and he lied about, and, and also the, the um, uh, Hollywood bus tapes came out and I just was so infuriated that I wrote a letter to the editor and they called me and I thought oh, I'm going to get my letter published oh, this is really super but no they sent over a reporter they asked for the people that I had told over the year they called them they confirmed the story and then they wrote it up and that's really what happened That was Jessica Leeds, whom Trump mocked the first time she appeared on CNN with her account, saying, and I quote, When you looked at that horrible woman last night, I know you said, I don't think so. I don't think so. Trump went on to say that, quote, she would not be my first choice, presumably to what, sexually assault? And when he said that, he, pre- he merely provided the public with further evidence of his deeply ingrained misogyny by suggesting that a woman would be lucky to be assaulted by him. And still, no one seems to care about the behavior of this president, who has openly admitted on tape his sexual assault of women. And I don't really mean no one. Of course, a lot of us do care. But no one meaning the powerful Republicans um, and uh, who rule Congress or his right-wing conservative base, many of whom claim to be Christians and to care about family values. And of course, we heard these same Republicans, along with their evangelical counterparts in Alabama, openly supporting the pedophile Roy Moore of Alabama for senator. Thank God that didn't happen. I heard that some of these right-wing people who call themselves Christians like to justify their actions, and maybe you've heard this too, by insisting that God has a tendency to pick strange, flawed figures like Trump and Roy Moore to be his messengers, to carry out his agenda. And as an aside, is that kind of like Steve Bannon calling Trump, quote, an imperfect vessel for his extremely warped worldview? I wonder, though, what they, the, you know, these evangelical Christians said to themselves in the wake of Roy Moore's loss to Democrat Doug Jones. Are, were they still thinking the Lord works in mysterious ways? Or is there any glimmer of light getting through a crack in their extremely messed up skulls revealing the truth? But we know all this already, right? It's no surprise. And it's so easy to fall into a Trump rant, rant I'll admit it, um, and you'll have to excuse me for going off of the deep end there a bit. <clears throat> but back to my, my, my main point, it was Trump's election that spurred the Women's March in Washington that rejuvenated feminism in this way and emboldened so many women to come forward and to speak out for the first time about Weinstein. And this in turn sparked the Me Too movement, with all the women speaking out about sexual harassment and assault and the, and the cascade of famous men falling from grace. One thing I've wondered about, though, is why the news of Bill Cosby as a serial rapist wasn't the trigger, the thing to start the Me Too movement back then. 
My first thought was that it could be because Bill Cosby is black. In other words, the dominant white culture dismissed it as something only affecting a black man and not indicative of a larger, more pervasive problem in our culture as a whole. But there's also the obvious that the news of Bill Cosby and his 60 victims, 60, came out before Trump was president. So that was probably a big factor as well. I also wonder why we don't pay closer attention to the high number of men, whether in the name of Allah or not, responsible for mass shootings and other forms of mass killings who were also convicted of domestic abuse, in particular for violence against their wives or girlfriends. Why is there so little discussion on the correlation? And I know there's some, but there's really not that much discussion of the correlation between domestic abuse of women and violence at large. I'm thinking here about the truck driver in Nice in France who mowed people down on Bastille Day in 2016 and the Texas gunman who was court-martialed for assaulting his wife and breaking his child's skull in 2012. Remember that? Very recent. But there are many, many other examples, and, and you may know this, but the information on that Texas gunman was not included in the government database tracking his background. But now I do want to turn to my, my own personal experiences, the main theme of this show, in particular the ways in which sexism impacted me from a very young age. Because when the Me Too movement started online, I began to think about everything in a new light, a more critical light. I thought about overt sexism, like harassment and rape, but I also thought about the ways in which I'd internalized Um, sexist concepts and ideas from a very young age. And to be honest, when I prepped for the show, I had so much to say that I knew that an hour would never suffice to cover it all. I knew I'd only be skimming the surface. There's just so much I could say here. But I can't say it all because of the time limit and because it would be impossible to say it all. For instance, I could do a whole other show on the pressure girls and women face on a daily basis to look pretty or attractive and how damaging that is to our self-worth, particularly as we grow old, but also just throughout our lives. And I, frankly, I probably will do that, that show someday. But for now, I'll begin with the more obvious stuff, the overt sexism, like how when I was only uh, about 12 years old, I got harassed on the street routinely by grown men whenever I passed them in a place near where I lived. These men sat on the steps of their buildings, this was in New York City, and they shouted something like, hey, pretty girl, will you be my girlfriend? Come over here. I remember being completely stunned and confused by this, just dumbfounded. Why would a grown man shout at me, saying he wanted me to be his girlfriend. It was very uncomfortable because there was no way to walk to my house without walking past them. And this was the beginning, of course, of a long string of similar and much more disturbing incidents familiar to most women. There were other memorable incidents of sexual harassment, including a rape threat from a boy my own age that occurred when I was very young. And I thought of going into detail and discussing some of these things here, but frankly, they're just too painful to go into. I find that when I talk about them, and I think, and I think other women feel this way too, that when you describe these things out loud, you can experience a kind of unpleasant feeling of being violated all over again, as if by conjuring the images in our own heads, we re-victimize ourselves and in each other's imaginations too. And in a world where women are constantly objectified everywhere we look, this makes total sense. 
I will say that there was sexual, actual sexual assault more than once, and also many threatening situations in which I found myself in physical danger while around men, both in college and outside college. Never in the workplace, however, and I'm very glad about that. Speaking of college, one particular memory came back to me very powerfully in the wake of the Me Too movement. I had a friend who actually told me and her other friends that she was raped by a guy we all knew. And while we listened to her, we we didn't support her in the way we should have. We didn't express outrage. We didn't ask her if she wanted to speak to some college authority or to press charges. And I'm ashamed to admit this, but at the time, I don't know if I fully believed her. I just couldn't wrap my head around it because I had some stupid misguided idea of who or what a rapist was that bore no relation to reality. And now 33 years later, I can say, I believe her. But I want to turn now to more subtle things from my adolescence to the present to reflect on some of the less overt things I experienced and the kind of head trip I got from growing up in a world of sexist distortions and misconceptions about women that I'm still trying to climb my way out of today. I'm talking, of course, about how I internalize sexism. Here's an example. Um, when I was a teenager, my best friend and I, both of whom identified as girls or cis females, as we'd say today, hit upon something that excited us. It was a phrase we liked to say out loud to each other over the phone, actually, that felt tremendously satisfying to both of us. We'd say, I'm a man. I would say it, and then she would say it, and we'd feel this rush, a, feeling, a fleeting sense of elation from saying those words out loud, the phrase, I'm a man had a certain thrilling cachet to it that nothing else did. And I still kind of, I remember that feeling, you know, I can even feel it now. So saying I'm a woman just didn't sound nearly as cool to us. In fact, the world, the word woman always felt awkward and undesirable to us, as if we really weren't quite sure we wanted to be women. We preferred to be girls rather than women, which is another strange and telling thing. I think when you, when you heard woman, It was often said in a kind of scornful tone, or at least that's sort of the overwhelming impression we got, like, that woman, what is she doing now? And even then, I think we associated the word woman with feminist, because with feminist, because feminists insisted on being called women, and that was already being discussed at that time. Oddly, when I think of this preoccupation we had with the phrase, I'm a man, I'm reminded of the civil rights protest signs. Um, that were worn by black men in the late 60s, the sanitation workers who were photographed striking unsafe, unsafe work conditions. And of course, I get the impact of that sign in its actual context. It was in response to Jim Crow and segregation and to being called boy by white racists. But it was also like saying, I'm a human being and you need to recognize my humanity. And so in a weird way, my friend and I thought that if we too could declare those simple words, I'm a man, we would have the clout, the respect, and the recognition that men have. Then along those same lines, there was the notion of the, quote, real man. My friend Steffi and I definitely fell for this stereotype as a romantic ideal. The real man was, <clears throat> was supposed to be sort of tough and sexy and very masculine in all the stereotype ways. And you know what I'm talking about. He didn't really have much consideration for others. In fact, he was kind of a callous jerk. He was what's popularly, popularly known as the bad boy, which was somehow considered hot or sexy then. And maybe it is even today. 
As adolescents, we thought that this was the kind of man we wanted to be with. It was like we imagined that we would somehow tame him. And while he'd be a jerk most of the time, on those rare occasions that he deigned to grace us with his attentions, he'd be a precious gem, and this would make it all worthwhile. In fact, we used to love to listen to the singer Billie Holiday. We listened to her on one of my father's old records on my phonograph, and she had a famous song called My Man. It actually has two different versions, but here's one of them. It cost me life, but there's one thing that I've got. It's my man. It's my man. Cold or wet, tired your bed. All of this. I'll soon forget with my man. He's not much on looks. He's no hero out of books. But I love him. Yes, I love him. Did you catch those words? She sings, Two or three girls has he that he likes as well as me, but I love him. I don't know why I should. He isn't true. He beats me, too. What can I do? 
And of course, at the end, she talks about even wanting to leave him, but knowing she'll come back to him on her knees. So putting aside the fact that Billie Holiday is an amazing singer, and I do absolutely love her, and this is an amazing song, if you just think about the content of the song, how incredibly sad and troubling it is, how it depicts a woman who romanticizes a man who beats her, it's pretty shocking. But somehow the romantic message of the words, oh, my man, I love him so, seem to linger with us and dissolve the darker, more painful content. In any case, it made romance seem like a murky mixed bag to us. It also gave us the idea that even glamorous-seeming women like Billie Holiday could fall in love with bad men. And of course, her tragic, untimely death just made her all the more romantic to us. And here's an excerpt from another song we liked by Sarah Vaughn called Jim. This is just an excerpt. Jim Doesn't ever bring me pretty flowers Jim never tries to cheer my lonely hours Don't know I'm so crazy for Jim Jim never tells me I'm his heart's desire I never see Set his love afire Gone are the years I've wasted on him Sometimes when I get Then I hang on and let him go Breaking my heart in bits That one's a lot less harsh than the other one, but it still speaks volumes about what a woman might put up with in a relationship with a man since it somehow romanticizes unrequited love. At the end, she sings, Someday I know that Jim will up and leave me, but even if he does, you can believe me. I'll go on carrying the torch for Jim. So this theme of women stuck with very rude and inconsiderate men and with unrequited love really stuck with us and actually became a romantic concept or it sort of enhanced the one one that we were already getting. I mean, I'm sure there are songs sung by men about this sort of thing too, but I somehow doubt they include being beaten by a woman or end with a line, I'll go on carrying the torch for Susan, or whomever the woman happens to be. Unless, of course, the idea is that she's a man-eater, like Hall & Oates, that Hall & Oates song, or a femme fatale, which is really a totally different thing. The overall message we got was that men can be horrible, 
but you can make this part this part of the romance. You love them anyway because their horribleness is part of what makes them masculine. And the bottom line is that if you're a woman, you need a man. Now, mind you, we both grew up with working mothers. We did not grow up with some kind of backwards notion that women need to stay locked up in the kitchen and be passive and subservient to men or anything. So we didn't understand why we were so captivated, I'm talking about my friend and I, by the romantic concept of the, quote, real man. I remember that we talked about it once and we decided that it was precisely because we grew up in feminist households that we felt the need to reject what was familiar to us with preference for what was not familiar. This is what we told ourselves anyway. But I know now it wasn't the truth. I know now that the truth was much simpler than that. It was that we were not immune to all the images on TV and portrayals in the movies and the other messages from the people around us extolling the mythical notion of the real man. But the irony is that the real man never existed. Or the real man exists, but he's actually the complete opposite of what we thought he was. I also grew up watching Saturday Night Live back in the days of the original cast with John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, and all the others. And I remember seeing Weekend Update with Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin in particular when I was very young, probably only about 10 or 11 years old. And if you're old enough to have seen the original SNL cast, you'll, rem you'll remember that Weekend Update was the comedy sketch with Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin as news anchors. And you'll remember the phrase that made that sketch famous, something I can't say word for word on the air, but Dan Aykroyd would repeat it over and over. He'd say, Jane, you ignorant blank. That blank was a four-letter slang word that begins with the letter S. You know what it is. And it means prostitute, a word was still used today to disparage women. Anyway, this was the running joke for that sketch, the line that always got the heartiest laughter, no matter what else was said, just that one line. And even today, when I mention that sketch, men laugh about it like a fond memory. I'm going to play the audio for one of those sketches right now with the S word bleeped out for radio, but I want you to notice the response of the live audience, both to Jane Curtin and then to Dan Aykroyd. And in this particular sketch, they're discussing, just to give you the background, they're discussing a famous lawsuit that was in the news at the, at the time. The actress Michelle Triola, I think that's how you say her name, was suing her ex-boyfriend, who was the actor Lee Marvin, after living with him for five years. And so Jane Curtin, you know, she was suing him for, for you know, to get some money to live on. And so Jane Curtin is arguing on the woman's side, and Dan Aykroyd is pre predictably arguing on the man's side. And while it's true that Jane Curtin does start off with with a stinging put-down directed at Dan Aykroyd. She calls him a failure. His retort is all based on condemning both the woman suing Marvin Lee and Jane Curtin herself by calling them the S-word and suggesting that being sexually promiscuous makes a woman worthless and combining that idea with a gold digger stereotype. Here's the audio for that sketch. I'm uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Um, during the past few weeks in Los Angeles, actor Lee Marvin and his former live-in companion Michelle Triola Marvin have been in court to settle her claim that he owes her half his income from the six years they lived together. That is the subject of tonight's point-counterpoint. Jane will take the pro-Michelle Marvin point while I take the anti-Michelle Triola counterpoint. Jane? Dan, times change and so does the nature of relationships. 
People are reluctant to get married these days, and looking at divorce statistics, who can blame them? But the lack of a piece of paper does not necessarily mean the lack of a total commitment. A woman in this modern-day relationship may well give up all her own personal pursuits, as Michelle Marvin claims she did, to give her full support to her man's career. And Michelle Marvin is just asking that the courts recognize that reality. Dan, there's an old saying. Behind every successful man, there's a woman. A loving, giving, caring woman. But you wouldn't know about that, Dan, because there's no old saying about what's behind a miserable failure. Jane, you ignorant <laughs> Bagged out, dried up, slunk meat like you and Michelle Triola know the rules. If you want a contract, sign on the dotted line. Oh, but let's all shed a tear for poor Michelle Triola. There was only testimony that she had sexual intercourse over 40 times with another man while living with actor Lee Marvin. But I suppose that sort of fashionable promiscuity means nothing to someone like you, Jane, who hops from bed to bed with the frequency of a cheap ham radio. But hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, and Michelle Triola, like a screeching, squealing, rapacious swamp sow, is after actor Lee Marvin's last $3 million. I guess what you and Michelle are saying is that when you're on your backs, the meter is running. Well, well please spare us, gals, and tell us the rates at the top. Then we can choose which two-bit tarts and bargain basements to shack up with. As you heard, Jane Curtin did get some cheers for her put-down of Dan Aykroyd, but nowhere near the level of cheers and jubilation that Dan Aykroyd received for his horribly sexist diatribe, which not only attacks women for being promiscuous, but also ties their sexual appetite to gold digging. Anyway, I was only about 10 or 11 when I first saw this sketch, or, you know, one similar to it, and I was the only girl in the room. I happened to be surrounded by only boys— my brother, and his two male friends. I even remember where we were. I had never heard a man call a woman this sort of name before, and the main thing I remembered was the jubilant laughter of the TV audience in response to Dan Aykroyd's name-calling. And in retrospect, it was and is really disturbing to me on many levels. I can imagine that someone might say in defense of this sketch that the humor was in the outrageousness of the insult itself. But I disagree. The humor was both in the outrageousness, I'll give you that to a degree, of the insult, but um, it was also in the thrill that it gave most men to hear such an unabashed and abrasive expression of total misogyny directed at a woman. It was like Dan Aykroyd was speaking the words that many men fantasized about saying out loud to women themselves. They found it completely satisfying and cathartic to hear a woman on TV actually saying them. As a kid, I didn't understand why Jane Curtin was the, the thing that Dan Aykroyd was calling her. But somehow I got that merely by labeling her that thing, she became it. And she had a look of defeat on her face. Like a guilty person, branded or shamed into something. There was no way for her to respond, and she never even had an opportunity to do so. And this makes me think of a wonderful book I bought my 14-year-old niece for Christmas this year. It's a feminist book for teenage girls called Girl Up by Laura Bates, a book I wish I'd had myself as a teenager. I wouldn't call it a perfect book, but it's a very good book. And the title is a, pl a play on the phrase man up. The author, Laura Bates, has a chapter where she discusses the S word and all the other words out there that mean the same thing and with the intention of disparaging women. 
I'm going to quote from that chapter, but because I'm on the radio, whenever she says that word, I'll just say S. And S isn't a type of girl. S is an attitude projected onto girls and women by a sexist society that is alarmed when they take control and make their own decisions. Until recently, S was used as a negative term for women who outrageously neglected female duties like sweeping and cleaning and had messy houses. Now it's used to express panic at the idea of women who dare to enjoy sex and decide how much they want and who they want it with. The same goes for a whore or a tramp or a floozy or a skank and a hoe. Unless you're using a hoe to tend marigolds, none of these things exist. Basically, they're just words we use to describe a girl who does what a guy would be called a legend, stud, or player for doing. Here she has a picture of a bullhorn in the book, which she calls the sexist BS horn. She goes on. An S isn't a person. It's in the eye of the beholder, like beauty or an annoying eyelash. We decide who a girl is based on something she's done or even just rumored to have done and then brand her with it as if it's a permanent part of her identity. Guys, on the other hand, get to wear their relationships and conquests like medals or badges of honor, which are much easier to take off and hurt a lot less. She does go on to explain with a tape measure-like diagram that there's only the tiniest pinpoint in the middle where your behavior as a girl or a woman is deemed acceptable. And that word acceptable, of course, is in quotes. The tiny range of acceptability is between the words virgin and vixen. As you move to the right of virgin, you get to pris and eventually to bitch on the far end. And as you move in the opposite direction, left of vixen, you get to tease, tart, and eventually whore. She then writes, but who you are isn't who you date or who you've slept with. Imagine if we decided someone's whole identity could be determined by another random action, like having cornflakes for breakfast. That would be just weird. It's pretty stupid and we need to stop doing it. Along those same lines, I love what Laura Bates says about the emphasis placed on a woman's virginity and loss of virginity. She writes, it's only girls' virginity that gets discussed as if it's this precious, priceless white flower that gets plucked at the opportune moment. Just think about language for a second. It's all framed in terms of guys taking something away from girls. We talk about giving it away or, quote, putting out. We talk about, quote, saving our virginity, quote, for someone someone special. Virginity is one of those things that sounds like a huge deal because we talk about it all the time, but it kind of doesn't really exist like the Easter Bunny. Now, I'm going to, I should let you take that in, but I'm going to switch gear and play a song by a much maligned feminist by the name of Courtney Love. Remember her? She once said, I want every girl in the world to pick up a guitar and start screaming. That was Courtney Love. And I want to play her music because I can't think of a woman more hated during the grunge 90s era, particularly after the suicide of her husband, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Remember that? She was literally blamed in a documentary and by his fans for his death. And if that sounds a little sexist, I'd agree 100%. This is a song she did with her band Hole from 1991 called Violet. Then we'll hear a few messages and we'll, we'll be back. So stay tuned. The sky was made of amethyst And all the stars were just like little fish You should learn when to go 
Francesca Rhiannon, host of Writer's Voice. In-depth conversation with writers of all genres. Writer's Voice, Mondays at 2 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 in Northampton. And we're back. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton at 103.3 FM. I'm Amy Landau, and today I'm doing a, a solo show, a monologue, if you will, on sexism kind of tracing my own experiences from youth to adulthood, not just the obvious things, but the less obvious, but equally insidious and pervasive things that I've lived with my entire life. Chances are, if you're a woman, you've lived with them too. 
And if you're a man, maybe you've experienced a wake-up call on all of this as well and recognize how damaging it is to girls and women and how you've unconsciously played into it yourself. Or you recognize how patriarchy and sexism has warped and stunted your own growth as a human being by putting pressures on you to suppress your own emotions, for instance, or to laugh along to jokes about women like Billy Bush did when Trump boasted about assaulting them on the Hollywood access tape. Hopefully nothing worse than that. But I'm pretty sure it's nearly impossible not to be somewhat sexist as a man, in the same way that it's hard not to be somewhat racist as a white person. And I've heard some very honest men actually admit this um, in recent interviews on the radio. There's just no way to isolate yourself or to live in a vacuum. And I'd go further than that and say that women, too, are sexist. Yes, we are. We've absorbed the misogynistic messages and internalized them, just as I did when my female friend and I liked to repeat the phrase, I'm a man, at the age of 13. And this is why we heard so many women in the presidential election filled with such vitriol toward Hillary Clinton, calling her a liar, a witch, and shouting, lock her up. Even Bernie Sanders supporters were included in that. Moving on, I want to talk about some other random things that I've thought about. The first is the tradition of the father giving away his daughter, the bride, to her future husband in the wedding ceremony. You know how the father of the bride is supposed to walk with her down the aisle and hand her over to her husband? Does that not reek of patriarchy? Well, as a matter of fact, it should, since that practice comes from the historical roots of marriage when marriage itself was a business transaction and women were literally the property of men. The father would hand over his daughter to her new husband, meaning that she would now become subordinate to another man who would take on the role of not only her husband, but also, in a way, her new father. Just think for a minute about the sick and twisted connotations in that. And of course, marital rape didn't used to be considered a crime at all. It only became a crime in all 50 U.S. states in 1993. Another thing I've been thinking about is the way in which we respond to terrorist attacks in this country, whether domestic or international ISIS-related terror on the news. Why do we always only see a group of men standing around at the scene of the crime, practically in trench coats, they might as well be, repeating stock phrases like that the suicide bomber or suicide shooter was a coward? Why this display of machismo in terms of the choice of words? What would a woman say in the aftermath of a terrorist incident if she were allowed to appear on the scene? Or does the dire nature of the crime, the scale of the crime, somehow warrant a male presence to make it meaningful, to fit the gravity of the situation? And this brings me to another realization about my own and others' internalized sexism. I noticed this in myself recently while at a restaurant with a group of people. I was talking to a man, and it was a very one-sided conversation, as it often is. Not always, but it it happens frequently. We've heard a lot about mansplaining. Um, With me asking all the questions about him, there was no reciprocity or real interaction in it. And at one point, I engaged another man in the conversation, also at the table. And there was a moment in which I had the thought, what do the men have to say? as if what they had to say was somehow more important than anything I had to say, as if the deeper, more definitive sound of their voices somehow carried more weight. And this thought got me thinking about how when I was younger, I had a tendency to speak in a questioning tone. The end of my sentences, you know, even when I was making statements about things I really knew about, would rise and pitch like a question seeking affirmation from my listener rather than ending on a lower note in the way that most men talk. 
This is something I still do from time to time. And I remember someone, actually a female friend, pointing it out to me when I first started my radio show in graduate school. I had another radio show then. She said, you really have to stop doing that. It's annoying. So I, I tried really hard to train myself to speak in a more declarative manner and to get rid of my tendency to raise my voice at the end of a sentence. But it was hard, and I still find it hard. And now when I think about it, I wonder if doing that was really necessary or the right thing. Did I do it because I thought I should sound more like a man to be respected? Going back to I'm a man. But then again, I could also ask myself if my tendency to speak in a more passive or submissive voice was because I'd learned that this is the acceptable way to present myself as a woman. All this leaves me wondering aloud, do we know who we are or who we would be without sexism and patriarchy? It's just impossible to say, because like I said at the beginning of the show, it's the air we breathe or the water we swim in, and the, and the reality is we do want to belong. We do want to be accepted by the culture we live in. So we're in this constant conundrum. And when I say we, I, I do include men in this, as I've said. I recognize that the system of patriarchy is damaging for men, too, in numerous ways, For example, when I watched that Saturday Night Live skit, my brother and the other boys watching with me were themselves too young to laugh. They didn't know yet to laugh at a sexist joke. They were also learning something for the first time at the same time as me. I want to end this show with another great excerpt from Laura Bates' book, Girl Up, from the chapter called The F Word. And in this case, she means the word feminist. She writes, we throw around around an awful lot of things about what it means to be a feminist. Here are some of the ones you might have heard. Being a feminist means you hate men. You are a lesbian. You only wear jeans. You have very long armpit hair or leg hair. You never wear makeup or high heels. You feel a strong compulsive need to burn your bra. You are a witch. You never want a boyfriend. You never want to get married. You never want to have children. You hate children. You hate everyone. You are bad-tempered, you are shouty, you regularly criticize others, you are fat, ugly, small-breasted, and jealous of women who aren't. You don't like other women. You want to kill all the men. You want women to run the world. You're always offended. And she goes on to say that while many of the things on this list don't rule out being a feminist, none of them are required or mandatory because feminists are varied. But there's this persistent idea that feminists are ugly, annoying, and have no sense of humor. She goes on, but in reality, feminism means one simple thing, believing that everybody should be treated equally, regardless of their sex. Or more formally, it's the belief in the right of women to have social, economic, political, cultural, and personal equality with men. When she's challenged by boys, the author talks about this, when she goes into schools where she talks about the femme part of the word feminism, she says, in order to reach equality, it is women whose needs need to be fought for, because it is women who have traditionally borne the brunt of structural oppression, gender inequality, and sexual violence. And that's why the femme bit is there and why it's important. She goes on, this doesn't mean boys can't face sexism too and feminism, and feminism also fights against gender stereotypes and social expectations that harm men. Once you realize all this, it becomes clear that saying you're not a feminist is a little bit gross and kind of embarrassing. Anyone who actually makes a point of saying that they are not a feminist should be treated socially in exactly the same way as someone who proudly comes out and admits that they never wash their hands after going to the toilet. 
So I hope that if anyone out there listening right now, male or female, has refused to be called a feminist, they will change that habit forever after hearing this broadcast. And you've been listening to Under the Surface. I've been talking about sexism and taking a look back at my own life from childhood to adulthood and my own personal reflections in the wake of the Me Too movement of 2017. This has been a kind of personal public end of year reckoning. So thanks for listening, everybody. Before I close, I want to mention that if you're curious to hear some of my past shows, you can now access most of them as podcasts at my website, underthesurface.pinecast.co or co. Again, that's underthesurface.pinecast, P-I-N-E-C-A-S-T dot co, C-O, or through my Facebook page at undersurface hyphen radio program. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next Sunday at 12 noon. I'm going to leave you now with another song, kind of, you could say, as a counterpoint to all those enslaved-sounding love songs I played earlier. This one is the iconic song, You Don't Own Me, sung by Leslie Gore from 1963. Happy New Year, everybody. You don't own me I'm not just one of your many toys You don't own me Don't say I can't go with other boys And don't tell me what to do Don't tell me what to say And please when Change me in any way You don't own me Don't tie me down Cause I'd never stay I don't tell you what to say I don't tell you what to do So just let me be myself That's all I ask of you truth thou hast for me open mine eyes